0: Hi, you're listening to Elevate, the podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in.
1: When Muhammad Ali said he didn't want to go to war to kill Viet Cong people, because if he can't have freedom in America, in his own country, why should he go and fight for a country that doesn't even honour his freedom at home? It gets complicated when people haven't got money and they are unable to see a way out. It's also generational as well. If your parents haven't been able to figure it out, they're not able to give you the answers. Your children are not yours to command. It's like a bow. You're the bow, and your child is the arrow. And you just pull back and you equip them, you prepare them, but then you launch them and your children are going to fly off to distances that, that you haven't even seen yourself. But if you hold on to them, they can never go.
0: Welcome to the Elevate Podcast, a series designed to explore teachings, ideas, and thoughts on empowering young girls while celebrating difference. I'm Ramita Anand, your host, teacher, and educational mentor, and I'll be chatting with insightful activists, thought leaders, creatives, and all round brilliant champions for girls. Through these conversations and my work at Elevate RA Mentoring Services, I hope we can join forces to foster meaningful connections in order to alter the narrative around what being different, especially for young girls, signifies. My guest today is an entrepreneur, champion boxer, a devout believer in the power of the mind, and above all, he is a fighter, quite literally actually, but not just in the boxing ring, in life too. He has fought some serious odds and has become a role model, an inspiration for many, especially those who find themselves in a place of no hope. Searching for his own why and finding his purpose, he has more than succeeded at being a champion. I am pleased to be introducing you to Carlos Moreno, a young man who has grown up in the roughest estates of London, who says it was boxing that kept him off the streets. He started his journey in the ring at the age of 15. By the time he was 18, he had already won his first amateur boxing match and then was followed by a string of victories. In 2008, he entered the National Novice Championships and reached the national semi-finals. The year after, he won the Haringey Box Cup Tournament gold medal and went on to win two more international medals. Carlos ended his amateur boxing career in 2014 with over 34 fights and has won the elite Portuguese national title. He decided at this point to turn his energy and love for the sport into a business passion, launching Moreno Boxing. From its humble beginnings from running small group classes and personal training sessions outside in a park in South East London to setting up his now very successful own studio and gym in the London South Bank University Sports Centre. He has had swift progress over the years and has proven that he was onto something very important, helping others heal, stay fit, and belong. The Marino boxing community today consists of many, many members who use the space to socialize, keep fit, and even party. But most importantly, they feel seen. Carlos values hard work and dedication. He is disciplined and attracts others with a magnetic force that is hard to miss. It was this conviction and drive that drew me into learning more about Carlos, his journey, and why boxing saved him. A story that I'm eager to explore with our listeners, and I hope you will be as moved as I have been. Let's get started. Carlos, shall we? Welcome to the Elevate podcast.
1: Welcome. Hey, how's it going?
0: It's going really well. I'm excited about this conversation. I'm really grateful for your time.
1: No problem. That's it.
0: Let's do it. I love that. So I really want to talk to you a little bit about going right back to Carlos's story from when he was a young boy. You've had so many first-hand experiences and many of the lessons that we work on in the Elevate program, mentoring young teens and tweens. I think that your ability to overcome hardship, face challenge and turn negatives into positives are extremely inspiring. So I was wondering if you wouldn't mind sharing some of your story with us so that we can hopefully use it as a way to inspire
1: others. That's absolutely fine. That's it.
0: Okay. So one of the things that really struck me is that your firsthand exposure to real life hardship came at a very, very young age. You haven't had the most conventional upbringing. And I wondered if you could take me back to where you were born, what, what your family life was like, what you did as a youngster.
1: So I was born in Lisbon. I lived there up until seven, eight years old. I recall some things about childhood, but it's quite traumatic. There was a lot going on. It's a bit hard to remember a lot of stuff, but I do remember like there was a lot of chaos at home. There was uh, a lot of people in my family who were up to it's like selling drugs and things like that. And uh, my family was involved in like, drug trafficking and things that landed a few of my family members in jail as well. So I remember being young, like a, a lot of trips, going to prison to go and like visit family members and stuff, which was um, quite an experience. So I remember that. And then I remember sort of, because uh, when I was um, born, my my dad already had a wife. He already had a woman and he got my mom pregnant, but they weren't together. So it was kind of like I was born in, into a situation.
0: And your stepmom or stepmother wasn't really involved in your life, I take it?
1: She was actually. So I used to. I was between my mom and my dad's um, So I was, on the weekends. I used to go spend time with my other brothers and then well, yeah, I lived with my mom but, um, like at least two to three times a week I'd go to my dad's house because the irony was he was five, ten minutes walk up the road. <laughs> 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 so yeah, just remember a lot of like chaos. And I remember I spent a bit of time in hair slash private boarding school. It was a time when my, my mom was just like, she couldn't look after me. So I just kind of was sort of like, it wasn't foster home. But it was more like just care home slash boarding school where you'd go to church every Sunday, you learn how to eat with manners, you as you, you study quite a lot. Um, it was extremely, very disciplined routine, but everything was just really taken care of. Like you'd have your bed, your bed would be made all of your meals, at prayers, you would go away on trips. Um, you'd, learn, you'd get taken to high-end restaurants and learn how to eat and things like that. So I, I was fortunate enough to have really good quality kind of upbringing in that sense. I had that experience also.
0: I find it, well, heartbreaking, but almost confronting, really quite hard to imagine a young boy having to think about how they're going to be looked after and then being shuffled between two parents, knowing that you were also part of a bigger family. You had lots of siblings. How many of you were there?
1: There was like five or six boys on my mom's side and two girls. And then on my dad's side, it was three boys and one girl.
0: Wow. The ones from your mom's side all had different dads as well?
1: No, the one from my, my mom's side, I was the only one, me and another one, were the only one of different dads, but they all had the same dad. Their dad actually um, committed suicide. He actually, it was yeah, pretty bad. He So our family had quite traumatic yeah, There's a lot of trauma from the start. He actually hung himself in the house, and one of my brothers came home and found him, and I had to take him off the rope.
0: So oh my he, gosh!
1: Yeah, so I think that's that was the start of um, a lot of trauma. I think that's where my brothers went a little bit, you yeah, know. Of the and your dad hung himself. I think because before that, that was before I was born. Um He was a firefighter, and you know, we had the night. You know, my my mom and in my brothers they had a nice big house um they had everything car they had it was just everything was pretty good until that point until until one of them come came home and found his dad had had hung himself then that that's when things went really bad
0: yeah of course that's a massively pivotal and difficult thing to digest as a youngster as i mean as an adult even but goodness me um and without the right support and knowing what how to deal with that that can be quite challenging for and shapes probably the rest of the story as you as you describe it sort of unfold if you're looking back now you sort of see that as the starting point for your mum's journey going yeah. the way it did yeah yeah it's
1: the best all these kids and yeah pretty bad.
0: yeah no that's really tough and I know you said it was Lisbon and some of us think of Portugal and think beautiful gorgeous sunny place with happy people and But I have a feeling that that's not the area of Portugal that you might have been, what was your neighbourhood like? What were the, did you have nice friends growing up? Or I guess with all these siblings, you probably had less time for friendships because you had so many people to play with in your own home.
1: I remember, yeah, it was definitely sunny and stuff, but the area that we were from, it was, if you know about sort of immigration in the 90s, there was a lot of civil war and a lot of colonialist wars in Africa and and even other parts of the world, like China and other places where the colonialists win. And the thing about colonialism, when they leave, they leave these places a bit of a mess, and then it's up to the people to sort of fight for power. So you end up with a lot of military factions that are vying for power, and you end up with a lot of, like, dictators trying to take power, but it's not done. It's kind of done under the pseudonym of democracy, but it's actually a lot of civil... Strife and warfare and clashes. And my grandfather was a general in, in one of the wars in uh, Angola. He was a general and he was killed, um, which was my, my, my mother's father. And he sent my mom to Lisbon because he was a general in the war and he didn't want her involved in the war. So he sent her and her husband to, 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 to Lisbon. And the part of Lisbon where they went to was a Portugal. <sighs> There was a lot of racism and it, it was kind of like, it's, I feel even now, I feel it's, a lot of it's changed, but endemically, Europe tends to be extremely racist as a kind of like, it's it's kind of in, engraved in the structure. It's engraved in not, not only politically and structurally, but it's also kind of part of the culture as well. And I feel like, not feel like, but I know that when my mum was sent to... Portugal they didn't want any black people in the nice neighborhoods so even though you can afford to go to the nice neighborhoods you wouldn't be welcomed and there was a lot of red taping around allowing you to buy a property so even if you had the money you wouldn't be necessarily permitted to buy a property in a nice area you wouldn't be given bank loans to start a business so I think a lot of the struggles that my my mom went through um, especially as a single mom was not the fact that she wasn't able because later on in life she did build businesses actually she actually ended up owning four or five houses she actually ended up owning restaurants and shops and, and things but it was pretty difficult so we were living in a neighborhood called Mora, which is basically the most ghetto neighborhood in the entire country um, and that's where they would send all the immigrant people, whether it was uh, Indian, Pakistani, black, uh, even Asian. So you'd end up in a community where you'd have mixed with black, Chinese and Indian and Pakistani all in one area and really concentrated and white people wouldn't really go there. There was a lot of crime, a lot of guns, I remember a lot of guns, a lot of drugs, a lot of poverty and begging, a lot of fights. Back then in the 90s, it, it was something to behold because even the government wouldn't send any funding to black communities. So even, for example, there wouldn't be any tarmac on the roads. So the roads would just be complete dust. So you would walk and you would just like your feet or your trainers. If you bought new trains, they'll just be completely ashy after like a day because there was just no tarmac. They wouldn't lay tarmac down on the roads. There was like broken stones and dust and it was just like a desert town. And then even I remember the locals. There were buildings that were sort of incomplete, like, can you imagine going up to, to your flat, but then uh, like a side of the wall of the building is exposed. So you can see right into the street because the government wouldn't on funding to finish that part of the building, even though it was estate buildings. So I remember the locals, my uncle was a, was a builder. I had a few uncles that were builders and they would actually go around and like finish off the properties that the government wouldn't, hadn't done. So they would carry cement and bricks and stuff. So the locals themselves would fix and look after their own neighbourhoods, even though it was state property, because the government wouldn't send any money.
0: So right from the very young and ages that you are, which is such profound impact on the way you shape your identity, you felt not included, not part of the bigger picture, a bit isolated. Would you say that's true? Or did you not know any better and you just felt that that's just how life was?
1: I think the isolation came much later. I think at that time it was a lot of curiosity. I was very curious because I had that I was always living a dual life. Like my whole life, I've always had this duality where I would go to a nice care home and boarding school and be, I'd be driven on a bus to school, study, like I'll go to public school, but then I'd come back. And do extra study in this sort of school my meals were all looked after my bed was, was made uh we would bathe twice a day everything was structured there was like time to pray time to go have dinner time to have lunch we were having all our meals all our snacks we, were, we would go to the beach uh, i remember we would go trips up to the beach and camping i remember going camping it was amazing i had a really good time on that side. But then there was also the other side where when I got to go home and visit my brothers and stuff, it was a different situation. So I'd see different things. I would I'd see a lot more poverty. I would see a lot more struggle. And there was always that duality of seeing both sides. And I think that contributes a lot to my ability to today be very humble and not really want much from the world and not seek much. And I think that contributes to my search in spirituality as well.
0: That's a very powerful message and a lasting impression on a young person that you can live like this or you can live like this. And your reality was a combination of both, which must have been a little bit confusing, to say the least, um, because most children, yes, they can have divorced parents, but for you to have to see... The things that your brothers had to do, and, and you said growing up you saw lots of crime and violence and chaos. Now these are not a young person's dream. Foundational ways of learning a, a life's lessons are quite challenging. And you said seeing a gun was normal to you. Most people see dump trucks and play with trains, and you said that in your living room there was just you just saw lots of things that most youngsters never had to see.
1: I don't like fully recall perfectly because my memory there was a lot of trauma. So my is like pretty bad around the side, because there was just too much going on. Like I had on my dad's side, my dad was actually a civil engineer and he was extremely successful he would build properties and build shopping centers. He was quite wealthy. And so I always had that duality, but on the other side, I'd go back home and would maybe see a shotgun and play with a shotgun. And maybe there would be like a lot of cocaine on the table. I remember there was an incident. I can't remember whether it was me or was my brother. There was. We were quite young. I think it was me. I was baby. I was sick and I grabbed the end of the tablecloth and I pulled it and all the cocaine fell on the floor. And my brother got really mad. And two of my brothers started arguing about it because it was like a lot of money. <laughs> but you can imagine you've got a baby running around and you've got a bunch of cocaine on the table and then you're getting mad at the baby because he like he
0: <laughs> Oh, Carlos, gosh, the fact that these things are still they're last. they're very very painful i'm sure i'm grateful that you're talking about this thank you for sharing something so vulnerable i know that's not easy
1: it's not things i've never spoken about actually it's, it's never really it's like it's more because you've asked but i've never really they, they it's not things that i think about so.
0: well it, understandably it, we often want to suppress those things that are painful and hard to deal with and, and almost surreal like they were so out of your control and you don't know how to process them when you're so little and even as an adult it's very tough to go back and to sit with those images and that and those feelings. And that's the next bit I wanted to talk to you about. So how old are you then? And how are you feeling when you move from Lisbon to England?
1: The move was pretty straightforward. I just...
0: Was it your mum that brought you here or your dad?
1: She sent me to go and live with my brother because by that time he'd already settled down and he uh, had family and stuff. So she said, go and with him because there's more opportunity for you. You
0: You touched on a couple of things. So, A, I want to find out what part of London you then grew up in, because you go in from a quite a rough part of Lisbon and you moved to London, and I imagine the neighbourhood was similar.
1: It was the same situation in the nineties. It was, I moved to sort of Denmark Hill area, which is where my brother was living. Denmark Hill is quite posh. The council had built, built in state for, again, immigrants, Pakistani, Somalian. Arab, black, African, so there was a, and that's where my brother lived. Um, so in a very, imagine a neighborhood with houses worth hundreds of millions, but then you've got this one area where it's like, those are the council people. That was, again, the contrast was insane because I had friends that were living in multi-million house homes and I used to go to their house and the house would have three, four stories and they would have trampolines in the back and they would have swimming pools and this and that. And I'd hang out and play all day. Um, and sometimes I'd stay over So well, actually I was, uh, I got along with a lot of my friends in the neighborhood, but then coming back home and you're coming to the estate and there's like poverty, aggravation struggle. Everyone's like, even a pound, sometimes people are struggling to get a pound. But one thing that I loved about the community I grew up in, regardless, it was always, people were always together. So you'd, you'd be like, go to the neighboring, ask if they got some sugar go and ask if they've got some flour, go and get some eggs. So people were always giving each other little things. They were always sharing. So you could actually, the kids would get told by their parents to go and knock on someone's door and ask for stuff. And we would always, they would always be giving. And that, I come from a very giving community. And then also the kids from my neighborhood would play out sun up to sundown. So they would play out playing football, basketball, we had the game game called Jurassic Park where the grass was so tall we used to like hide in the grass and chase each other we'd wrestle um, we would go um, into the bushes and build tree houses we would start you know trying to make barbecues but that was a you know salmonella
0: so there was a real sense of togetherness and community and, and that's interesting cuz we'll talk about that in your boxing community but you got this idea that you can create almost family with people that are in the same boat as you or you're looking out for each other you don't even if you're not blood related by blood you you can make a family with the people that you are living your life with spending all your days with and until sunset you know you say you're out there with them they would become like your family if you're with them that much no
1: i remember when i was studying psych psychology in my a-levels and i did study on how music affects teenagers and their sort of psychological psychological and social development And one of the things that struck out is that actually the different types of music that you listen to will affect not only the circles that you hang with, but the sort of support system that you build as well. And I found that we would listen to a lot of hip hop. We loved hip hop and hip hop was like, because that was our education in our group, it was all these guys and we were obsessed with this idea of hustling, making money and et cetera, et cetera. Some of it, yes, was, was bad. But there was a lot of hip hop that was very eye opening and very con, especially if you listen to conscious rap, a lot of it was educating us about a system that was built, not for us, the you know, system that was built that we're in that we're kind of just lodged into a system that was not designed for us, it was designed to go against us. The hip hop teaches us to kind of flip the script and use that system for our benefit and to overcome, right?
0: It empowers you to deal with the injustice, maybe.
1: Correct. Yeah. So I found that that was very useful to have that sense of community because things got a bit rough when I started going to secondary school and that was in Peckham. So I had to walk from Denmark Hill to Peckham to go secondary school. And that's when things contrasted again quite heavily. So my life has been the case of like always having this duality and contrast. So Denmark Hill, really nice, really posh. And then I'm going to school in Peckham and it's just chaos. Peckham was... In the nineties, I don't know if people remember in the nineties, Peckham was not a place that you wanted to go to. Now I go there, it's just completely gentrified. You see all the hippies and all the, you know, they're out there spending money. They're in the bars. And now they look at us when we go to Peckham and like, what are you doing here? And they want, they don't want us to go to these areas because now they're becoming nice. Hold on. When I, we used to go to Peckham, you wouldn't come here because you'd get robbed. <laughs> and there's a bit of money and there's bars and clubs and I. you looking at us black people and saying, what are we doing in your area when we were here before, you know, so that's how so it's quite a sad thing because I've seen businesses there where people have struggled in fighting to build their businesses up and then, you know, the developers can just come in and just shut it down and just write a check and just close up all these cultural businesses that have been there upholding the community for so long and they just shut these down and then just come and put these bars and clubs, etc. But when I was going there, it was very dangerous. You didn't really want to go there at night, especially you'd get get robbed for sure.
0: Again, it strikes me in the same way that you talked about your life in Lisbon, where you had the security and the safety of your care and your schooling and your books and all the activities that you were able to do Monday to Friday. That school became your saviour almost. It was like an escape. It was a place that you could really throw yourself into and lose yourself from the other part of your life. And what saddens me almost is the fact that you had a love for learning. You had a curiosity, as you said earlier, and you end up in a school in Peckham that is chaotic and probably not as safe environment for you to just explore yourself as a student, build your identity in your teen years, which is what is so important in that time and use learning as a tool because you're looking out for your safety
1: so it was more like i was just very confused in in secondary school because like i just wanted to be friends with whoever and i remember i would like sometimes hang around with a group of girls and just spend all day hanging with the girls and then i would hang out with uh the guys and play football and then i would go to that group and that but then it was it was just very it was quite confusing because it was everything was so isolated and i wasn't used to that i was used to something else i was used to a different type of community where everyone was together so like i said we used to share everything and my friendship group we had arabs we had africans we had whites we had black we had like everyone we were all friends because we were all poor
0: you had a common thread of survival sure
1: you begin to realize hold on this all this equality inequality stuff is nothing to do with And this is something that I learned really now as an adult. It's not me personally. I I look beyond gender, politics, beyond religion. It's it's none of that. And even slavery, it was nothing to do with colour and all. It's all economics. All of it is just economics. It's when people want to have more for themselves and they don't want to share, they become economically driven to create policies that benefit them so that they don't have to share, so they keep more for themselves. That's all it is. It's just economics. I realised that as well when I went to secondary school. I was like, hey, it's just economics. There's a reason that people stayed together in these pockets of groups. And from that age already, I used to speak to a friend of mine and we used to be obsessed with a film called uh, A Beautiful Mind with Russell Crowe. I watched that when I was a teenager. I became obsessed with this idea of intelligence and this idea because he was a genius. It's based on John Nash, who was a, a genius mathematical uh, scholar and professor. And he came up with the game theory. And when I heard about game theory, I became obsessed with studying game theory and studying competitive analysis and why people compete for resources. But that I mean, I'm talking like the, in the most basic sense, because obviously I didn't really understand the world the way that I could understand it. Now i was a teenager, trying to make sense of social dynamics. So it was, uh, I used to have these psychological th- experiments and thoughts and kind of like models in my head, not really knowing what I was doing. I remember at age 15, 14 or 15, I was already reading uh, Introduction to Political Theory, um, which is supposed to be a uni-level book, but I was reading it in secondary school. And uh, the first chapter was on human nature and ideas, concepts and theories, how we create concepts, how we create theories. I would look around and just kind of hang out there was a group that was just chinese guys all asians and i would and they they accepted me and they used to call me black because <laughs> we used to go out together we used to hide we used to do everything together and then there was another group that was just girls and then there was the rough group that they liked me because i was small frame but i was quite strong and i and i could fight and then there was the bully group we'd make fun, fun of them because they were so massive these guys and we would say yeah, these African guys, they've come to the UK and they've lied about their age just so they could get into the into the younger uh, year group. So there was all these different groups um, and then there was the punk kids and all this stuff. And I just wanted to be friends with everyone. I just didn't want to, I didn't want to like, they used to say, you're weird, you're weird. I would hear that a lot. You're weird, you're weird, you're the weird kid. And I would just shrugged <laughs> my shoulders. I didn't, didn't really care.
0: Were you bullied, Carlos?
1: No, not at all. That's the, that's the interesting thing. I wasn't, I was quite tough. So I would get into fights, even with the bigger guys. And even if they won the fight, they would regret messing with me. They wouldn't want to do it again.
0: And Is that because of who your brother was?
1: Not really, because my I never I I didn't really tell my brothers anything because I just didn't want them to get involved with anything because they they were quite quite dangerous. So I didn't really want them to know anything I was up to or anything like that. I remember once I was in. Peckham or Campbell and someone was trying to say to me, an older guy, I was probably, I was a teenager. He was an adult. He came and he was like, what's the time? You got the time? I said, no, I don't know the time. And he goes, oh, have you got a phone? I said, yeah. He goes, give me a phone. I was like, no. (laughs) Then he got me in a headlock. And then I was like, I just pushed him off. I was like, get off me. Like, you're not taking, I was quite tough. You know, I was like, you're not taking my phone. And then he started making threats and I just walked off. Within 10 seconds, I see my brother who was a Muay Thai boxing boxer. He was massive, huge. He was an Olympic weightlifter. He was in jail for 16 years and he uh, was a, a, a Greco Roman wrestling champion. And I just seen him and I, and I saw him and I literally was so scared that he would find out that that guy messed with me that I was like, oh yeah, yeah I'm good I'm good let's go let's go let's go and I was trying to get him to save the other guy I'm trying to get my brother away he's you know just to kind of like let's go let's go eat something because if how you find out how he found find out that the guy just tried to rob me the other guy would have got robbed and battered he would have got robbed and battered so that was my worry that I didn't want my brothers to do things to other people so I just always kept them out of it.
0: In your mind, as a small teenager whose brain is developing and you're soaking up so much information, you're like a sponge when you're little. You were exposed to so much variety, I suppose. You're learning all this stuff about how to stay safe on the streets. You're learning how to blend, I suppose, with lots of different cultures, understand different people from different places. You've got this wonderful willingness to accept people as a whole rather than in isolated cliques. So I'm, I'm learning so much about you through your storytelling about your childhood. I suppose my question really is what does that do to you as a 14, 15, 16 year old person trying to, as you say, you're trying to make sense of the world. And you today in your thirties are able to look back and say, well, it wasn't my brother's fault. He He did what he needed to do to survive. But how do you justify in your head Or how do you come to terms, maybe you don't, maybe you can't, with the fact that he's feeding you and and the work that he does is bringing food on the table. And that's why he's doing what he's doing. But on one hand, you also know that what he's doing isn't right by the law.
1: I guess that's the point, isn't it? Isn't right by the law. When Muhammad Ali said he didn't want to go to war to kill Viet Cong people, because if he can't have freedom in America, in his own country, he's treated bad his on country why should he go and fight for a country that doesn't even honor his freedom at home and that was breaking the law and they've sent him to jail for that you know if you look at people like bob marley that came out and said this is a war of principalities this is i, I will not be judged by the laws of men i'll be judged you know by the laws of god and principalities if you look at tupac he said only god can judge me so i, I you know we can go on and on and on martin malcolm x etc these were all compassionate individuals who they understood humanity and they understood what a system can do to people and what a system can cause people to do. Malcolm X was a drug dealer before he went to jail. You know, he was all this red little red and he was problematic. Two packs all drugs.
0: We're back to that whole idea of, and I said to you jokingly once, and, and I didn't even know your whole story at that point, but it sort of reminds me of the show Top Boy Your Life. And you said, for real, that show is not, made up. It is based on people's true lives.
1: I don't think people realise that. It is real. I watch it and I just laugh and I just kind of like, I just go, wow. Because because it was designed, I think the show was directed by people who lived that life and you can see it. You can see, I can see that whoever directed this, they've actually, you can see they they know how it goes because that's how it goes.
0: For any of my listeners that don't know the show, it is was actually made twice, wasn't it? Most recently, again, by Drake. But the original series is all about young folks, a bit like the story you've just told me, who are struggling to survive and have been failed by the system, failed by the society and have got themselves into a world of drugs and drug dealing in order to survive. And it talks a lot about the complexities of, of raising youngsters in, in a world where they're trying to make a better life for the younger ones. And and very similar to your story, there was a big brother in that, in one of the main characters, wasn't it? That he, he was trying to do best for his younger siblings. And so he had to do what he could to to get money and provide food for them, which again, you know, it breaks my heart because it's, it's, he felt he had no other choice.
1: It just gets complicated when people haven't got money and they struggle and they are unable to see a way out. And it's kind of, it's also generational as well, where it's like, if your parents haven't been able to figure it out, they're not able to give you the answers. If I kind of break it down to like, ultimately, how I, how I view everything with regards to my teenage years and what was the lesson for me, I was always in this duality and it was always economics. One thing I quickly understood is most of our ills and problems is our inability to A, understand capital allocation and how to acquire capital. And B, the second problem is economic. It's not understanding the economic model that we live under and how that can work against us and what we can do to overcome it. So a lot of the problems stemmed from my friends. A lot of them wanted nice things. They wanted nice trainers. They wanted to have the girls. They wanted popularity.
0: Who doesn't? Which teenager doesn't want
1: that? Which exactly, adult right.
0: doesn't? Yeah, of course. That's a very normal and a human. It's
1: normal if you come from a normal upbringing. Then it's normal. But if you come from poverty, it becomes difficult because now you're saying you're watching, you're seeing your rich friends, and they're coming to school with the best stuff, you know, best trainers, best etc. And you're like coming home, and you're thinking, I need to do something to get the money. And that's where you know the devil creeps in and says, hey. You deliver this package or you go and do that for me. I'm going to buy you a new pair of Jordans or something. Right. And you obviously you're just thinking about the Jordans. You're not thinking about what you're doing. You're just going to go and get grab your package and you're going to go and deliver the package. You don't care what's in it, you know, and it starts from there. And then you're being told that if you want to make a bit more money to get nicer trainers or get some Louis Vuitton or something, imagine going to school. I'm going to get you a Louis Vuitton belt. All the girls are going to be looking at you. What do I need to do? cool, you need to go. You see those guys over there, they're in the wrong spot. You need to get rid of them. So now you're starting a confrontation with another group to get them out of the spot. So your guy can go and sell there, not realizing really what you're doing. You just want the belt to go and show off in school. So there's always that carrot, but then there's also the stick. The stick is the Lord. The Lord then will catch up to you. So I understood that very quickly. But that's
0: sort of why it's so painful for someone like me, because it is I work with young teenagers and it's teenage brain that isn't fully developed and their rational side isn't there. So exactly what you said, they're not thinking far along enough about what the consequences of that delivery or that confrontation is. They're looking at the short term gratification of the belt, the girls, they're looking at what they can get. And that is why it's so sad because teenagers are targeted for that very reason. They are the most vulnerable folks. And that's What is why I'm hoping your story will ignite something in people to think about how we can help youngsters in a way that will change life rather than just give them a short term fix, which is, I think, what a lot of people did. And so tell me, Carlos, did you get involved in having to move parcels for people or did you have any exposure to that yourself personally or just something that you witnessed?
1: I can't say that I got involved in moving stuff for people because I didn't. I have to take responsibility like anything that I did I did it out of my choice I chose to do it I, I didn't I've never been forced to do anything I did stuff because I because I wanted to make money so yeah I did I did sell drugs before and I've never tried any hard drugs or anything I've never even taken a pill or anything like that but I did sell I did sell
0: So did you get into boxing as a way initially of defence or was it something you just stumbled upon because your brother was doing it? Because you were 15 when you first put on a pair of gloves. So how did that become for you?
1: I had a lot of uh, pent-up anger, aggression come out. It took me a long time to be able to understand it. I was explosive, extremely explosive. It it was I was really calm actually, but then it it just out. If someone really bothered me, I didn't understand how to deal with anger. So my anger was very explosive and and I was a bit too strong for my size and my age. So my brothers trying to restrain me was quite difficult. Actually, I just didn't understand much about myself. Self inquiry was a very difficult thing because I didn't have time for that. I was so busy surviving. I was so busy scanning the environment and being hyper aware that I had no time to look inward. So I didn't know who I was for a very long time or what I was capable of or I just didn't know anything so the boxing it just made sense to me it's it was a uh, that the hard training that thing of i'm going to be a champion and then i'd be training training training. and then there's a the time when you're training where you get so tired and you want to give up and i love that point because i always hear the question there's always something that it, it pushes me to somewhere that i can't ex- i don't i can't even explain it sometimes it's like i get so tired and then i hear a voice saying okay this is it you've given everything you have knackered you're finished what are you going to do and i say i'm just getting started and then there's this energy that it's only after you've emptied all of, you've given everything you've given that's the only way to find more is you have to first give everything you've got and then you find something you didn't know was inside you and i love that i used to love that feeling of i'm exhausted why am i doing this and there was always that question of why are you doing this to yourself why are you doing this and the answer was always because I can because I can because God has allowed me to do this. I can do it. I have been blessed. I have been gifted. Why not? And that translated to my life every time, because faced with all of the obstacles that I was faced with, or the chances of me sitting here today and having a business and having a nice car and having a flat and having everything that I've got and having still my faith in God and my religion and my community. Really, most of my friends, they're... Either addicted to drugs or in jail or just like really serious issues, you know, Um, and I was able to just escape that. And I think that that thing of training so hard and understanding that anything's possible. If I, if I give honestly, everything I've got to a cause, if I say, this is my goal and I go, 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 go. And then midway through, I feel, I don't know if I'm going to make it. I always know that I can. Even more, and that helps me with with anything. Helps me overcome whatever I experience. Whether it's depression, I know I can overcome it. If it's sadness, I can overcome it. If it's grief, I can overcome it. And then things get even better when you when I add God into the equation. Because when I was I was raised in the Christian in a Christian boarding school, so I, I had a lot of faith in God, and I, I was studying Scripture.
0: I don't know if it was con- conscious or subconscious, Carlos, but would you say? that you knew you were making an active choice of not going down the road that your brothers did?
1: Every day. I was very judgmental when I was young and I used to kind of hate certain things and be very. I was very, I was just in this dark hole sometimes in this kind of negative mindset for many years, this extreme, and and I would just explode and go crazy and get angry. And I would say to myself, I'm never going to be like that. I'm never going to do that. I'm never going to be like that. And I would... At night, it was always at night. I would always pray. That's one thing. I, I would always pray at night.
0: Did you ever get anxious or scared? I don't know if these are words that you would use to describe yourself as a younger person. But I feel like a lot of youngsters, whether they have a tough life or not, whatever the challenges, is, and, and we can't compare who's got more pain than somebody else. I won't put that in there. But whatever somebody listening uh, who might have a youngster or or is a youngster and feels that this is going to be tough for me it's sometimes easier to present like a tough person, having a, an outer shell and acting like you know, you've got a lot of bravado or, you know, the, the school bully or the people generally put on a persona that I'm not scared. I'm not nervous. I'm tough, particularly in, in, in school con- social contexts. I wonder if you ever went through anything similar where actually inside of it was today as an adult, you can look back and mm-hmm. say, actually, I was really scared and I was really anxious at that point in my life.
1: I think one of my personality traits that really rubs people up the wrong way, I can be quite, I'm quite resilient, I'm extremely resilient and I can be a bit cold as well if I need to be. If you ever watch the movie Never Back Down, um, they talk about this idea that if you get hit in the face, there's two types of people. There's the one that backs down and runs away from a fight and then one that fights back right growing up the way i did it's like being hit in the face multiple times and it's either going to make you really shy and it's going to knock the fight out of you or it's going to make you extremely tough and it's going to make you extremely resilient and it's going to make you fight for everything so i think with me it had most people it probably knocks the fight out of them with me it made me extremely resilient and extremely it made me a great fighter that's why um, I was able to win championships in boxing. That's why I was able to to go so far as I did. It sounds strange that like okay, surely when he was young and experiencing this stuff. But you have to remember, like for me, it was normal. I look back on it now, and I'm I'm like, yeah, I'm so glad I'm not there anymore. Like I wouldn't want to go through that. But it was normal for me at the time. I didn't I didn't know anything else. You have to from 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 the beginning, from when I was born. That's all I knew. I didn't know anything else. So I didn't know that there was an alternative
0: until you found boxing. If you were to give a young teenager who might be listening to this, or a parent of a teenager listening to this, what would you say to them to help them feel less lost, or somebody who's feeling out of their depth to help elevate them?
1: This too will pass. I think it was Abraham Lincoln who suffered very depression and a lot of uh, issues surrounding the the times when you know when he was trying to change. Things for a little bit better, you know. And he used to say he would say to himself, this whatever he was going through, he would always say, This too shall pass. This too shall pass. When I learned that, I I would say that to myself, I said, Yeah, that's actually that makes a lot of sense to me because I've been through so much and there's no way that I can be here today without God having a plan for me. Because the things I've been through, if it wasn't for divine intervention, And I felt a lot of the divine intervention in my life. So even despite not having parents to look after me and whatnot, I felt God was always looking after me. God was my parent. So I was always guided. And I grew up being able to read the signs in my life. So I I would always feel when God's trying to tell me something. And I would always, I would listen because I knew that if I didn't listen to the guidance, I would end up in real trouble. So anytime the divine intervention came, I would always listen. I would always follow the light. I just don't resist. I just would go with it, and then in a smooth, a smooth saving. When you do that, I can only speak for myself. I don't have the answers, but I can say having faith in God, putting God first, is very important. And whether whether you believe religion or whatnot, but just believe in something greater than yourself, because there will come a time when you realize that we have some limits, some limitations, and even if they're temporary limitations, they're still limitations. And sometimes we need a bit of help um, and we need a bit of divine intervention. So my way of doing it is praying and believing in God. Second, also believing that this too shall pass. When I look at examples from many people who achieved great things, they all went through challenges and turmoils and they all overcame. So it tells me that my problems couldn't even come close to what Ali had to go through or what Malcolm X had to go through or what Martin Luther King had to go through. And if they got through it, I can get through and inspire others also. And the third thing is, comes from Buddhism, actually, and I'm glad I looked into Buddhism, this idea of just being just to be, you know, my, my brand Moreno Boxing, the slogan is be who you want to be. That's what it is. It's just be who you want. To. It's just be. And the idea of being is it's amazing because we always want to do we've never, it's very difficult to just be. But when you, I think I I can attribute a lot of my success and a lot of my overcoming things to just being, to, to just observing, watching, being, and allowing myself to flourish like a flower, just naturally, just grow naturally.
0: It's beautiful and it aligns very well with the five superpowers that we try to work on, which is empathy and resilience and kindness and confidence building. And I think all of that comes from, being who you want to be, you know, and allowing the, the even if the environment around you stands as obstacles or struggles, but just to focus inward and, and to listen to that little voice. And I think what you said is, is very important as well, even if you don't, you know, have a, a religious mind or have a God that you believe in, but believing in something greater than yourself is having that sense of purpose, that belief that there is a energy in this world that can guide us if we give ourselves that But but we need a little bit of help along the way. And and hopefully things like this, conversations like these, books that you've mentioned, the shows and movies you've mentioned, which I will link all in the show notes for anyone listening, are ways of getting free access to being inspired and and to having that. But would you say then that having an outlet like boxing to a parent who is dealing with a child who they find... They can't relate to or struggling or finding it tough. Would that be a, a starting point with getting them involved in some sort of sport or activity be what you' would also be something you might advise parents or teachers even?
1: Yeah, it's very important to have a focal point. It's a critical, critical to have a craft. A, it needs to be challenging because if it's not challenging, it becomes boring. If it's too easy, but you need the right amount of challenge. If it's too, too challenging, then it becomes impossible. And then you don't want to do it again. So it needs to be the right amount of challenge. It needs to be something that we would enjoy, something that we're good at and that we would enjoy. So ideally you want it to be something that comes from choice rather than like you have to do this. And in the beginning, you should, I think it was uh, Robert Green wrote a brilliant book on mastery. He suggests that if you to master something initially, what you will do is, you will try many different things. And it's this thing of trying many different things that eventually something's going to stick. So the idea of allowing the child to try many different things and then helping them to guide them and help them to identify something that they really enjoy and then encouraging them to stick with it, but not forcing them, not telling them to do it because then it takes a joy. Like anytime you tell someone to do something, now you're making it into a task. We have to make it fun for them you know, that's why I tend to be really, I have, I have a lot of nephews and nieces because I've got brothers. I'm really good with kids and they they just love me, man. They see me, they go crazy. Ah, uncle, i got one grabbing my arm, next one jumping on me. I play with them and they listen to me. Like the parents are like shouting and and I come along and I just go, what's going on? And then they feel they feel almost ashamed and embarrassed. They don't want to disappoint me and and, and I say to them, come on let's talk do you want anything what's up? and then they talk to me because they trust me I play with them I understand them I connect with them and I don't tell them what to do I just I, I speak to them and I, I'm the level and I get them to understand a bit so I think that's that's the challenge is I'll, I'll keep but this is a big challenge for parents because if you want some good ideas on parenthood check out Khalil Gibran, the prophet, when he talks about the the, the voyager that comes and they say to speak to us of our children, and he says your children are not yours to command. They're like it's like a bow, and you're the bow, and your child is the arrow, and you just pull back and you equip them, you prepare them, but then you launch them, and your children are going to fly off to distances that, that you haven't even seen yourself. But they are. But if you hold on to them, they can never go. Right. So you prepare your children to launch them. And then you let them go off into the sky and achieve greatness. But if we try to impose our views, if we try to impose our conditioning, if we if we are so afraid of our kids making mistakes, if we're so afraid that we do not let them go. And, and, and I was watching yesterday, it was a diving program on Netflix. I forget what it was called. It was uh, The Last Dive or something like that. This lady, she's trying to break the world record. So she goes, I think she goes 100 in... 103 meters was the world record. And then she done 104 meters. On the 104, her dad said, I was so, so afraid. I didn't think she would come back up. And I was watching this uh, and thought, how brave of the father to, to watch the daughter do all of these dives where sometimes she's coming up and her brain is blacking out and she's near nearly dead, you know, and he's allowing her to do this. And she did. She broke the world record. She said it at 105 and I think she broke it five more times after that. Um, and so that's, that's life. If you want your child to achieve greatness, you're probably going to watch them dive down into the sea, 105 meters down below into darkness and not be sure if they're going to come back out. But that's the risk you're taking to allow them to fully, fully be themselves. And that's a difficult thing to do. That's a difficult thing to do because parents want the best for their kids. They don't want the kids to make mistakes. They safeguard them. And one thing that works for me is because I didn't have parents to limit me, to safeguard me, to tell me, do this, do that. I was able to go and do whatever I wanted. And I realized there is no limit. They say sky is the limit, but actually there is no limit. You just go in and keep learning. And and that's what I'll say to parents. Just allow your kids to just be allowed and observe them. Learn from them. Instead of always trying to impose your views and teach them, why don't you step, step back and learn from them? Because a lot of the depression that I see kids experiencing It's because they feel, what is depression? You are depressed. You are compressed, right? You are oppressed. Just the word pressed. Someone's pressing onto you. When I feel depressed, I say to myself, okay, something's pushing onto me. It could be a negative thought. It could be a worry. It could be whatever it is. It could be someone, but something or someone is sitting on top of me and pressing onto me. And what I need to do is identify what it is and then get off me. Please allow me to. To be so sometimes it's the parents depressing their own kids sitting on top of their own kids and pressing them down that makes them depressed and then they need to find their own outlet and then that's when they start doing the drugs and start doing the, the stuff behind the parents back where it needs to be allowed them to be what do you need help with what can i assist you with so that's the only thing that's the only advice i can give don't depress and don't oppress your kids
0: that's pretty profound carlos for somebody who isn't a parent yet i think that's pretty wise and i'm grateful for your very strong insights and very real insights into what you've done and how you've shared that with us. You were within touching distance of a life that you were fear, you know, that you saw wasn't what was right for you and you made something for yourself despite all the odds. And, and that's not easy. So a massive congratulations to you. That's being said, let's do the rapid fire. What song instantly puts you in a good mood?
1: I'm happy, come for long if you feel Really? Okay. Fantastic. Oh, Oh, okay. Um, i got sunshine on a cloudy day. Yeah. Yeah, love it. Love it. I guess you say what can make me feel this way, my girl, my girl. You're talking about my girl, my girl.
0: Brilliant. Love it. And it's, if if you're not in a good mood now, I don't know when you will be, because that's really certainly put a, a, step, a spring in my step. What celebrity, I think I might know the answers, would you like to have dinner with?
1: Dave Chappelle.
0: Ah, uh-huh. interesting choice. Stuck on a desert island, the only cuisine you'd be wanted to be stranded with would be?
1: Probably pizza.
0: Italian. OK, love it. What would you whisper to yourself as a teenager now, if you could go back and say something?
1: Don't worry about anything at all. Go for it favorite movie Braveheart
0: mm. best advice you've ever received
1: make the best out of every opportunity in life
0: and fill in the blank my superpower
1: is my faith
0: yes amazing thank you Carlos that's been so enjoyable I'm really really grateful for your time and I know we've talked about some pretty heavy stuff and some pretty importantly things that I hope will make a real difference to others So, for listening brilliant brilliant chat thank you so much again see yeah. And that's everything from us today. Thank you to all of you for joining in and being part of these very important conversations. I hope you will continue to support our cause by sharing the podcast to raise awareness with others. If you get a moment and could rate and review the podcast, I would also be hugely grateful. I'd like to extend a very big thank you to Ryan Prestepino from The Pine Studios for all the hard work that he does to help me bring this podcast to all of you. Until next time, stay well and speak soon. Bye for now.